Now, um, just uh, I'm not going to go through all of the uh, details of the postmortem examination because uh, those are all in the notes that you would have available to you, and uh, there's no point in repeating all of that. Just want to to make a couple of um, uh, comments. Um, ruminants are examined uh, with the left side down. The reason being that the um, the rumen is large and heavy and uh, uh, just easier to keep it out of the way uh, when when the animal is lying on the left side. Um, uh, Pre-ruminant animals, uh, you know, calves and, and lambs that are uh, still essentially monogastric can be done in the same way as other monogastric animals with the right side down. The reason that these animals are examined with the right side down is that uh, by opening the left side of the body, you actually have uh, more organs and um, uh, and uh, more of the uh, the abdominal uh, structures available to you um, uh, to to look at without disturbing them. And so, uh, and particularly with the with the animal position on the right side down, the spleen is on the uh, on the top, and so can be removed uh, immediately if if it's required for uh, for culture, and so um, so this is the reason that monogastrics are examined with the right side down. Um, the uh, uh, the principle of the incisions that that I've described in the um, postmortem technique is to, um, uh, if you recall, I talked about the principle of postmortem examination. You want to open the animal with as minimal disturbance as possible. And and so essentially with uh, three to four uh, major incisions, uh, you can actually open the uh, the whole animal without disturbing any of the internal organs. And uh, and so this uh, goes back to that idea of trying to examine the animal in um, uh, in the condition that it was, uh, as close to the condition as it was when uh, uh, when it uh, died or when it was ill. Just one little tip, and that is if if penetrating wounds are anticipated, uh, whether they be uh, bite marks from another animal, either in fighting or um, or in uh, in predation, uh, or uh, gunshot wounds, uh, these are very often seen more easily from the uh, from the inside. Uh, in other words, in skinning the animal, look look at the uh, look at the skin from the subcutaneous side. And uh, and the wounds will often be much more apparent than they are from the external side, where uh, they're covered by the uh, hair coat and uh, confused uh, by that. Um, the uh, postmortem examination uh, progresses to um, uh, to uh, remove uh, each of the organ systems in. Um, uh, in sequence, and they're kind of, they're kind of three phases, uh, I think, in a in a gross postmortem examination. The first is to open the carcass, but not to disturb any of the internal organs. And so, what you're doing there is you're opening the animal up, and you're getting a good overview of of all of the thoracic and the abdominal organs. The second phase is to uh, systematically remove the organ systems. And the third phase is to examine each of the individual organs and organ systems in turn. And so uh, the technique that I've outlined here uh, does that. Um, the um, 
removing the the organs, the um, the technique I described, I find it easier to remove the uh, the tongue, trachea, esophagus, uh, and and uh, the organs of the thoracic uh, cavity, the thymus, heart, and lungs, all in one unit. That can all be done in one unit and taken out. And again, the, the principle is to do as little damage as possible. And so all of those can be taken out, working from the uh, the mouth caudally. In removing the abdominal organs, I find it easier to work from the rectum forward. So um, start uh, at the back of the animal and then uh, remove the gastrointestinal tract. That then exposes all the rest of the abdominal cavity and uh, and the individual organs can can then be uh, removed and and examined uh, from there. At any point during the gross postmortem examination, um, uh, if it's felt necessary to take samples from microbiology, you should do it right away. Uh, don't don't wait until the end and then take all your specimens. If you see something as you're working through that that you feel should be cultured or collected for some other um, uh, particular uh, test, uh, such as virology, um, take those right away because. Um, there's more chance of contamination if you wait until the end of the procedure to take those samples. So uh, take those samples as you uh, as you need them. Um, just one one little note uh, regarding the the pancreas. Um, this is of perhaps more uh, importance in the um, uh, to those who would be doing um, uh, necropsy examinations on laboratory animals. Uh, but it also applies in um, in dogs uh, if you're concerned about pancreatitis. The pancreas uh, is an organ that sometimes uh, can be very difficult to uh, separate or to identify from the surrounding uh, mesenteric fat, particularly if you have an animal that, that has a lot of um, abdominal fat. And so it's um, it's sometimes difficult to identify exactly what is pancreatic tissue or even where it is if you're not really used to looking for it. The um, the duodenum leaves the uh, the pylorus of the stomach and and moves caudally in all species. And then uh, as it as it nears the pelvis, it makes a about a 180 degree turn and uh, and then uh, goes anterior again. And so it forms a U-shaped loop. The pancreas is, is always in that loop. And so you don't need to know what pancreatic tissue looks like. All you need to do is identify the duodenum, follow it until it loops back, and virtually all of the tissue in there, in addition to fat, will be will be pancreas. And so if it's necessary to collect the pancreas for some experimental purpose, or in uh, the case of uh, uh, dogs, uh, in which you're you're trying to uh, either determine whether there is or is not pancreatitis, um, identify that loop and uh, uh, and the pancreas is uh, is there for you to look at. Um, the um, other uh, organ systems in the in the procedure that I've outlined here are uh, essentially just removed in in uh, in sequence and um, and individually examined as described. I've mentioned the um, uh, the use of a bandsaw in a couple of places. Uh, for example, splitting the femur on a bandsaw. 
this of course is not practical and in, in, uh, not even possible in a fetal situation. In a, in a, a large animal clinic that's doing a lot of uh, necropsy work, um, then, uh, then investing in a, in a bandsaw and having it in the, uh, uh, in the necropsy area of the clinic is, is often uh, worthwhile. Um, but uh, in the absence of bandsaw, the, the femur on um, most animals can be split, um, even on large animals, by using the um, uh, either rib cutters or uh, uh, or the uh, shears that I was talking about for um, trimming uh, branches on trees. And uh, ideally, if you can cause a spiral fracture, in other words, not not cutting straight across the femur, but cause a spiral uh, fracture, an angled uh, fracture, that will give you um, uh, bone marrow and, uh, uh, and the medulla to look at and, uh, and assess for uh, the, not only the bone marrow, but also the bone structure uh, can be assessed that way. Uh, removal of the, the brain is um, one of the uh, things that is um, really important and, uh, and can be quite difficult, requires a bit of practice. Uh, I've described a, a procedure using uh, three uh, lateral, or two lateral and one transverse cut in the uh, in the skull to to remove the brain, and um, and with a bit of practice, this can be done uh, quite easily um, in in large animal uh, practice. It's sometimes um, uh, easier just to remove the head and to send the head into a referral lab or uh, to take it to a, um, uh, a large animal lab uh, that, that ha is equipped with devices um, uh, to hold the head and, uh, uh, and other equipment that can be, can be used to uh, remove the brain. For smaller animals, um, the brain can, can quite easily be removed in clinic. Uh, for example, in dogs and cats, a hacksaw can be used uh, on the, um, using the cuts that I've described and uh, the cranial cap removed, and uh, by turning the uh, the head upside down and and very gently dissecting uh, or cutting or even just with gentle pressure on the cranial nerves, uh, the uh, the brain can actually be uh, coaxed uh, ventrally if you're holding it upside down uh, into the palm of of your hand as you um, as you hold it and and can be uh, with a bit of practice can be removed removed entirely. Uh, intact uh, in that way. Okay, so Maria, um, what, are, what resources are available between AHL and OMAP or that are Ontario-centric for brain removal um, for, um, for, for veterinarians specific to Ontario? Well, thanks, Melanie, and it never ceases to amaze me how, um, unfortunately, in a field postmortem, sometimes we will get every tissue but the brain, even in an animal that was showing neurologic signs because the brain was too hard to remove. And my first response to this is, uh, well, just send us the head. Just send us the head, and uh, we have the resources here, um, uh, the appropriate uh, vice and uh hand saws as well as the band saw in order to remove that brain. Of course, it depends whether or not it's a neurologic or rabies suspect, which particular implement you use. We do not use band saws on uh, neurologic suspects because of the risk of aerosolizing um, virus. But certainly you can submit the intact brain at any time. Uh, in terms of other resources, there are uh, training videos, uh, 
embedded into the AHL website, and there's also an AHL lab note number 33 that goes step-by-step -step through two different methods of removing portions of a large animal, a bovine or an equine brain, in the field. Uh, it shows diagrams as well, and I think it's, uh, it's a really excellent resource, so I advise people to look at that. Um, finally, in terms of rabies suspect cases, it's become quite complicated nowadays because CFIA will no longer uh, pick up brains for rabies testing. They will still test the brain, but we have to get the brain to CFIA. And so nowadays, if there is a case where humans have been bitten, public health is actually responsible for performing that risk assessment. And in Ontario, the Ontario Association of Veterinary Technologists have developed a network and are now trained to go out into the field and to pick up that brain and test it for public health. In cases where there's been no human exposure but pets horses or farm animals have been bitten, uh, OMAFRA is actually responsible for shipping that head or brain to CFI for rabies testing. And again, there's a very good resources on both the AHL website as well as the OMAFRA website that details all of the contact information that's required in order to submit that head. Thanks, Maria. Um, so just a quick question about um, removing heads and sending them in. So if you're sending in, a, uh, if you're going to remove a um, remove a head of, off of a horse or a, or a cow or something like that. Is there, um, what, what kind of tips could you recommend if so? Um, a couple things. Um, it's easiest to um, remove the head by disarticulating at the uh, uh, occipital joint right at the, the first vertebral body and um, uh, by, by just uh, lifting the uh, muzzle uh, dorsally and, and uh, uh, working your way down to the, um, uh, to the joint, you can actually uh, penetrate the joint with a knife and fairly easily uh, with a knife uh, work around the occipital condyles and, and remove the head. Um, the only other tip I would uh, uh, make would be that if, if you're dealing with a horned bovine, I'd cut the horns off at the base before you, you send the head in. That just makes it easier to ship. And uh, make sure it's in a, um, uh, a waterproof uh, container of some type. Double bagging in, in plastic bags would only be the start for something like that. It needs to go into a heavy plastic container such as a, uh, a large uh, sealable bucket uh, for, for transport uh, into the lab. But uh, with those uh, basic precautions, a uh, head can uh, quite uh, easily be shipped in for further handling at the, at the lab. Uh, I would also like to just make a couple of comments on the rabies situation in Alberta, very similar to Ontario, and all the information is on the Alberta Agriculture website uh, for rabies submissions. There are uh, technicians available through Alberta Agriculture who uh, will actually pick up uh, uh, heads if, if it's not possible to, uh, uh, to send them in, and so those arrangements can be made uh, directly with Alberta Agriculture, and all the information is on their website. Okay, super. So yeah, I'm thinking kind of like a Rubbermaid tote would be more most appropriate for a for a head of a large animal, huh? Yes, yes, it was something like that, and, yeah. and something that you can probably not just uh, close, but but seal with uh, around the edges with duct tape so that it's right. not going to uh, to leak.
Okay, great tip. Um, yeah, and I guess you kind of feel like you're in the Godfather movie walking off a farm with, with, a, with a large animal head, especially with a horse head. But I guess as long as Maria doesn't mind at the lab, it's okay. <laughs> I, I would like to just uh, point out, um, in cases of toxicity and ruminants, um, the um, I've mentioned uh, toxic plants being uh, found in the in the rumen and, and um, identifying these. Uh, some uh, some of the uh, toxins, and particularly in Western Canada, water hemlock uh, will kill animals very very quickly. And in actual fact, uh, in uh, in doing uh, postmortem on animals that died of water hemlock, if you look at the esophageal groove, you may actually find parts of the plant in the esophageal groove. The, it kills the uh, the animals so quickly uh, that they don't even have a lot of chance to to move that into the rumen and, and digest it. And so um, uh, you can actually find pieces of intact plant in the esophageal groove. So that's just something to um, uh, to keep in mind uh, if you're suspecting uh, those types of uh, uh, or, or that particular type of toxin. So things such as Japanese yew, uh, larkspur, other plants that are um, in in uh, an individual practice area uh, can uh, can often be identified if you if you're aware of the toxic plants that are in your particular area um, or um, uh, and and uh, are thinking of those during the postmortem examination. One other uh, thing to keep in mind is that in farm situations, uh, cattle will sometimes get out into the um, uh, the garden and uh, they may eat. Uh, talk, uh, plants, ornamental plants that are toxic that you wouldn't normally think of on range in that particular area. So, uh, so again, being aware of the environment, uh, uh, aware of the fact that the cattle may or may not have got out and gone through the garden or gone through the, the flower bed sometimes will, uh, uh, will be a tip off, uh, as to, um, um, what particular toxin you may be looking for. <clears throat> okay. Now, I just wanted to touch on, um, Nick, you talked about um, quite a lot of the toxic plants that are uh, present in Western Canada. Yes. So I just wanted to um, to ask about toxic plants exclusive to Ontario. So I thought it maybe Maria would be able to answer this one. So certainly there are toxic plants that are indigenous to different regions of Canada, and I would recommend that any veterinarian uh, who's practicing in a particular province pay particular attention to uh, lab newsletters that uh, outline specific outbreaks or, or what might be common in that area or uh, their association might put out uh, specific uh, alerts. And in the case of Ontario, uh, certainly uh, we see uh, specific types of toxicity that would be higher on our list. One of them would be uh, blue-green algae toxicity, also very common out in Western Canada as well. And uh, in, in Ontario, we've had several dog deaths um, related to anatoxin A, and it's a neurotoxin, and there are no gross or histologic um, lesions, but the only way to test for it is to actually uh, either test the pond water that the dog was noted to be drinking or try and obtain some water from the stomach content and test for anatoxin A. So certainly a consideration in warm, hot, sunny weather when you notice blue-green algae growing on the surface of ponds. Another type of 
plant toxin that is sometimes reported is uh, tansy ragwort, which is an invasive weed on pasture, and we have had cattle dying of hepatic fibrosis related to that particular plant poisoning. Uh, also, some horses can be involved as well. And the poisonous principle is a pyrolizidine alkaloid that causes hepatocellular ne- necrosis and hepatic fibrosis. So uh, less common, perhaps, but certainly reported in Ontario. One that we see fairly commonly is uh, Japanese eutoxicity in uh, horses. And uh, in this particular case, they can die very suddenly, and it can be difficult toxin to identify. Uh, We search through the stomach content very carefully and try and look for those little pieces of you. They're very highly toxic, and it doesn't take much you to uh, kill an adult horse. So those those would be just uh, several of the very common ones that, that we might uh, see in terms of toxic plants, but uh, definitely something to keep your eyes and ears open for what happens to be in your area, and that way you can keep it higher in your list of differentials when this case does present itself. Okay, thanks very much. That's great. Um, Nick, did you have anything to add? No, not really. Actually, those um, other than the than the uh, Japanese yew, um, uh, blue green algae, uh, sinecure poisoning, they occur here too. In fact, we have uh, blue green algae blooms uh, pretty consistently every um, uh, late every fall in uh, central and northern Alberta, and uh, because of there's a, a heavy concentration of cottages on these uh, lakes and and ponds. Uh, there's usually quite a lot of um, public attention drawn to this uh, by uh, by the public health authorities, and okay. uh, so people are are quite often um, alerted to to the the presence of blooms in Alberta at least.